we've been trying to invest in, you know, getting translations so that you're not limited to people who then also speak English. And I mean, we don't have a ton of a budget, but we have committed to paying the people who appear on our show. So, you know, in recognition of the time that it takes them and that not everybody, you know, has a job where they get paid to show up and be a talking head places. So, you know, really thinking about all the structural things that we can do to make that possible. This is Evolve CPG, a community of purpose-driven, sustainable product brand leaders who not only believe it better, but actively pursue it. I'm your host, Gage Mitchell, and today we're speaking with Anna Canning, campaign manager of Fair World Project, about the rigged economic system, why fair trade matters, and the new For a Better World podcast. Hi, I'm Anna Canning. I'm campaigns manager with Fair World Project, and we're a nonprofit that does work education and advocacy around fair trade and all kinds of related issues. Nice. Thanks for coming on the show, Anna. I'm excited to have you uh, for multiple reasons. I just always love our conversations, but also I'm excited to share with the audience um, some of the new stuff you've been working on. But before we get there, I'd like to talk a little bit more about your career in fair trade. I think most of what you've done has revolved around fair trade, for sure, at least mission. But how did you get into the subject of fair trade in the first place? There's a lot of ways, I think, to start that story. Um, I mean, one version of how I got started really working on fair trade issues or thinking about what it would take to build a just economy for everyone is really rooted in my own work life. And, you know, one of my early jobs when I was like 17, I was working at Walmart. And at that time, I didn't have, you know, the experience or the language to name what was going on. But I really saw how they had elaborate systems and processes to do what I now know is called wage theft and really exploit the max out of people around me. So, you know, I think that that was like maybe one of those clues that got me started on that path. And, you know, when I really started working in fair trade was some years down the line after I'd gone to college and all that. And I was working for this little fair trade coffee roaster in Minneapolis called Peace Coffee. And at the time, it was a super tiny company. I think I was like the fifth employee. And so I managed production, did roasting, shipping, delivering the roasted coffee, buying the green coffee. You know, in my time there, I did kind of all of that and concluded working to help them open their first coffee shop. So sort of little bits all along that supply chain. And nice. out of that, you know, yeah. <laughs> so I feel like I've kind of come to this point where now I'm working on you know, more analysis and advocacy and all of this stuff. But it's really grounded in that beginning uh, with coffee. And, you know, coffee is such an amazing crop that I can't drink it that much these days because it just makes me like nutty wired. <laughs> <laughs> this part where I'm talking fast, it's actually just tea. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Even tea. We get Even you all tea wired, yeah. <laughs> gets me amped. But coffee is like, it's so amazing, right? It's like sensorily really complex. And it's so tied up with history and culture. Really, anything you want to talk about and explore, you can do it through the lens of coffee. 
And so I've visited coffee growing communities around the globe and really everywhere you go, coffee is grown, who it's grown by, where it's grown. Every little bit of that really chronicles the story of that place and its history with colonialism and how the history of the past 500 years has played out. And so I feel like that's really kind of that's what grounds a lot of my approach to talking and thinking about fair trade. And yeah, the, one of the key origins there is really in the kind of these big global power imbalances to get really heady. <laughs> but, you know, Latin American coffee farmers are really some of the instigators in fair trade and really the leaders in building these cooperative models that are supporting families and doing organic farming and education and all this really brilliant stuff that we want in the world, I think. And so, you know, yeah, learning from those brilliant leaders and trying to build a market for their coffee and then trying to figure out how to make something work when the whole system is really stacked against it. I think that was how I got started in fair trade and kind of what hooked me in. Nice. You know, I hadn't connected the dots, but you're right. Like most of people's introduction to fair trade is probably through something like coffee or chocolate, something um, like that mm -hmm. that's grown overseas, but very popular over here. And it's perfect in one regard because because so many people understand coffee maybe more than you understand some other things it's a great subject matter to like start having those conversations about you know somebody grew this and you know somebody roasted it and you know somewhere in between it got traded so it's, it's just a good introductory subject as opposed to something obscure that maybe only a small percentage of people consume or something that's got a much more complex like processing background and it's very disconnected and people don't even know what it looks like. Yeah. And it's really, it's been really interesting. I think in the time that, you know, I've been involved in some of these, this movement and this work is, you know, 15 years ago or so, 20 years ago, so much of the conversation around coffee was, you know, the choice is decaf or regular. And I think that we've come such a long way to understanding <laughs> that it's grown in all these countries and that it has all these different qualities based on where that is. So yeah. it's really amazing to see that conversation evolve. Yeah, for sure. That's great. That's cool. I didn't know that uh, about your background or about the origins of fair trade, even though I love fair trade. So see, we're all learning something. Um, so next, so you know, not next, but through Peace Coffee, <laughs> you, know, you got introduced into uh, the fair trade movement. But then eventually you ended up at Fair World Project, which is all about kind of educating and advocating for fair trade and, and illustrating the differences between the different labels and kind of going deeper into the subject matter for those who are ready to learn more. So how did you end up working with Fair World Project? Yeah. So up until Fair World Project, I had kind of continued to work at that nexus of fair trade and organics and natural food and coffee industry. And I sort of continued to work my way through the supply chain. <laughs> That's, you know, the story I'm telling before was like, I've touched all the pieces of the supply chain in this, that really simple version that goes from crop to cup. But you know, there's all these steps in between. And so I spent a bunch of time then working with the distributors that get the products into the stores and kind of rounding out the spots that the supply chain that I've touched. Um, but that was really one of the ways or the places that I got to see really viscerally how our current food system is rigged. And 
you know, so I was spending all of my days like quibbling with distributors over like little bureaucratic hurdles. I was also doing freelance copywriting and communications work on the side. And so I was sitting there like kind of stuck, you know, in these like, stupid little bureaucratic battles every day. And then also kind of trying to figure out how to and seeing how those things were like linked to the bigger picture of the food system. And so trying to figure out how to get more of the work that I love doing together with, you know, that bigger challenge that was really like hitting me in the face every single day when I was at work. So that's how I found my way to Fair World Project and eventually meeting you and getting to work yep. together as well. Yeah, that's cool. I love when people's passions and just their curiosity is what leads them into their futures phases of their career rather than just opportunities like a headhunter or a promotion or something like that. I feel like so often people end up in roles that maybe they never really wanted, but that's where the money was. Or that's where the job offer was or or that's where a friend worked or something like that. So that's uh, much more interesting stories when you um, carve your path out yourself. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, my path has definitely been about continuing to pursue the question and it looks very meandering, I think, but it's also kind of the ever-evolving version of that curiosity. Yeah, the way it should be. For those who don't know, can you talk a little bit more about the types of things that Fair World Project does? Yeah, definitely. So we act as, so I said we do education and advocacy around fair trade and food justice and some of the ways that that looks, you know, we act as watchdogs of fair trade labeling claims with analysis that's really grounded in a larger vision for a just economy and a food system that can nourish everybody. So some of the work that that looks like, like we will do advocacy campaigns, like some corporate campaigns targeting corporations with pretty specific demands. We work a lot in coalitions with folks both here in the U.S. and then internationally. And we end up doing a lot of work, I think, kind of straddling the food justice movement and then mm. into the natural products industry that nice. <laughs> I feel like we're kind of bopping back and forth and connecting some of those conversations backwards and forwards. Great. So, yeah, yeah, that's I think that's sort of the technical part of what we do. You know, if I'm asked to give a really short explanation of what I do, sometimes I'll say that, you know, one of the things that we think about is like why a banana that comes from all the way across multiple oceans is supposed to be cheaper at the grocery store than an apple is, right? <laughs> and that there's like so yeah. much in that one little moment there that you can really tease out and that there's policy and, you know, supermarkets and all these other things that feed into that simple little fact. And I think that that's a lot of the work that we do. Yeah. And then people even have to know that bananas aren't grown locally <laughs> to, <laughs> to start that conversation too. And that's, that's the hard part. But what You're I, right. Good point. <laughs> what I love about the work that, uh, that you've been doing is not only kind of going deeper, but also just making it easier for people too, because I feel like a lot of people, you know, everyone gets label confusion. There's so many different labels these days, but in fair, fair trade, there are multiple labels and they are not equal. And I love that uh, fair world project does a good job breaking that down and just trying to make it really digestible for people. 
and sending that onto the world in various formats, whether it's social media content or through the, the publication or anything else like that. And then the World Fair Trade Day, which of course, you know, hasn't been going on lately because things are, the world is weird right now, but, uh, but just doing the, some of those uh, collaborative kind of awareness campaigns, I think just getting some of this stuff into people's um, attention because beyond consumers, even a lot of people in the industry don't know the difference between fair trade labels. So I, I feel like that's really good work. Um, with that said, what do you find people asking you the most or, or what do you think the most common questions or confusion is with fair trade? Ooh, <laughs> the most common questions and confusions about fair trade. I mean, I think that you're right. There is such a proliferation of labels. And, you know, in the past, in the past like six months or so, I guess we've la launched our own podcast called For a Better World. And we'll probably talk about that later. But, mm -hmm. you know, one of the things I was struck, I was having a conversation for that with some folks who are cocoa farmers in Cote d'Ivoire and which is in West Africa where like two thirds of the world's cocoa comes from. And there are 92 sustainability programs that exist in that region oh to address the problems in cocoa. Wow. <laughs> so, you know, like I just want to say, if you think that you walk into the grocery <laughs> store and you have labeling confusion, like the programs that farmers are dealing with to kind of address these problems, they're much, they have many more to deal yeah. with. <laughs> um, so I think that, let's see, uh, but back to a confusion that I think exists. You know, I think fair trade is you know, I think of fair trade as kind of coming out of these small scale farmer movements, Latin American coffee cooperatives, and, you know, really like this push for changing how trade is done. And I think there's been, you know, over the past 20 years, as that education has really reached more people, there have been then a lot of other programs to try to address some of those issues. And so you see a lot of things that are maybe driven more from corporate social responsibility side, which has really become much more of a PR focus, honestly, mm -hmm. over the past 10, 15 years. Yeah. So I think that there's a real distinction there in, in terms of who's in the driver's seat, who has whose goals are trying to be met and who gets input on what the goals are. Yeah, that makes total sense. So you, you did briefly mention the podcast, but before there was a podcast called For a Better World, there's been a magazine for a long time um, out there in the world diving deep into some of these issues. So how did you all end up deciding to shift or add? I'm not sure if the podcast is replacing the magazine or if the magazine or the podcast is in addition to, but, but how did the podcast come to be from this uh, magazine format? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the magazine is going away. Um, we did For a Better World magazine for like 10 years. And it was a free biannual thing with a distribution of like 200,000 copies to natural food stores, fair trade shops, Whole Foods, all these things. You know, and I loved it. It was this print magazine that could be dropped off in places. It was sort of stealthy, but pretty <laughs> propaganda, maybe. <laughs> yeah. 
And one of the things I loved about developing it with Modern Species is the way that we were able to bring some really pretty information and hard-hitting stuff together, but like wrap it up in a pretty skin Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, make it really digestible and snackable. I think there's so much wisdom and experience out there in the world and so much research being done, but it's not always in an approach or in a format that you can, you know, read or digest in your daily life so you know making it something that you can read while you're eating a sandwich not something you have to like schedule a block in your calendar to read (laughs) or have a phd (laughs) in something yeah yeah this is like a personal pet peeve of mine right is that there's so much thinking and analysis and research that happens and then the end product ends up really dense <laughs> and that that works for uh, for one audience but there's so many more people out there than academics and mm-hmm. you know weirdos like me who can get paid to read a lot of dry text nice. and also then that there's like so much wisdom and experience and solutions out there from people who have lived experience and decades of thinking and analysis that aren't granted the same platform as those NGO people and academics. And so I think the vision with that magazine was, or my vision, at least when I took it on, was to bring those perspectives together and put them in places where they were accessible and then make it appealing to pick them up. But end of the magazine, like COVID was a big piece of that, right? Like who wants to pick up an extra piece of paper and bring it into your house? Who's lingering in a public place in general? Yeah. So you know, the, and the reality of that was it was also really expensive to do what we were doing, to invest in beautiful design and then printing and distribution and do it all, you know, with good quality ink and environmentally responsible ink mm-hmm. and union printing, which is a dying industry in the U.S. So, yeah, it's <laughs> it was all these harder, <laughs> harder, harder, harder. <laughs> but th- so those were some of the things that made it seem like it was a good idea to transition to a podcast format. And, you know, I'm still very much adapting to it and like figuring out what it's going to look like. But I think one of the things I'm really excited about is to get more voices into people's ears and for people to hear them directly. And, you know, I think, well, like you and I, I feel like have gone back and forth on one of the big constraints of print, which is that eight and a half by 11 has some really firm margins, right? Mm-hmm. And you're trying to cram a story into those margins. And with this, I think we're able to take the story and give it a little bit more of what it needs and let that story and those conversations drive. Yeah. Plus with the audio format, people don't have to, like you say, carve out <laughs> multiple hours to try to sit down and digest something, they can literally be listening to it while they're cooking or taking a walk or something else. So it it fits into their life a little bit better. And like you said, you can get more voices in there. I was just having a conversation recently about the importance of telling producers stories, but not just telling those stories, but having first voice be part of that story, like actually hearing it in their own words is important. So I think that's one of the Things I've been enjoying about listening to the podcast so far is that, you know, it's one thing to read a quote from someone or read an article that someone else wrote about a farm, but then to hear the farmers literally talking about the issues that are important to them, I think is is really powerful. Like hear it in their voice and hear which things they specifically pull out as um, important or risky or the the reasons they're doing certain things. Um, I think that's really powerful. Yeah, for sure. And I I mean, I think we're really, 
we've been trying to invest in, you know, getting translation so that you're not limited to people who then also speak English. And I mean, we don't have a ton of a budget, but we have committed to paying the people who appear on our show. So, you know, in recognition of the time that it takes them and that not everybody, you know, has a job where they get paid to show up and be a talking head places. Yeah. So, you know, really re- thinking about all the structural things that we can do to make that possible. That's beautiful. Love it. So season one has been diving into kind of a, almost like a serial format, um, kind of diving into a complex subject matter of, of the Nestle kind of pulling back on their fair trade commitments and all the repercussions of that. Can you tell those who are listening a little bit more about how that season came to be and um, what the goals with that are? Yeah, definitely. So exactly as you said, uh, we've been talking about a the Nestle Kit Kat bar that was sold in the UK market. And just for a little backstory, the UK fair trade market is really different than it is here, that oh. they have... They have fair trade certified, like really mainstream things like a Kit Kat bar. And that's because they have a really robust movement of fair trade campaigners there. And so that UK Kit Kat bar was fair trade certified up until June of last year when Nestle announced that they were dropping that certification. And so, you know, when that announcement came out, my team was really conflicted mm-hmm. that at one on the one hand, you know, you had the Coker Farmers Network in Cote d'Ivoire who had been selling to Nestle, making a statement calling for Nestle to return to fair trade terms with them. And then on the other hand, we'd felt really strongly for a long time that Nestle, who's a multinational with a really long rap sheet of human rights violations and, you know, water rights issues and just like all of these things really had no business being fair trade certified. Like it was so at odds with, (laughs) (laughs) right? Like you think an ethical thing, you don't think like a company that's also being sued by former child laborers. (laughs) Like that seems like a bad mix, right? And so, you know, that was a mark of just how broken that system is. So, you know, as Fair World Project, We were really conflicted, but we ended up supporting the farmer's call to action. But then that tension between ethics and labeling is really at the heart of the story that we've been telling over the course of this season. So we started off talking to leaders of the Ivorian Cocoa Farmers Network, those ones who had been selling to Nestle, and then have continued to track other key ingredients, so sugar and palm oil and, you know, the stories that kind of shape how those products exist in the food system now. And as we're going, we're not just tracing Nestle's shortcomings. We're also reaching out and hearing from people who are building really amazing alternative models. And, you know, regenerative agriculture, I think, is becoming a big buzzword in the natural products industry. Uh, But before it was buzz, those techniques were being used by small-scale farmers all around the globe. And so one of my favorite interviews was actually getting to talk to the leader of Surrenda Palm in Ghana, who's doing like small-scale farmer palm oil. And instead of the destruction and deforestation that, you know, you hear about all the time with palm oil, they're growing this diverse food forest with palm mixed in with all these other crops, and it's enriching the soil. So there's this lush greenery, and, you know, he's describing like these little crabs scuttling around, which (laughs) was a fact that got me like way too excited in the course of the recording. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> but, it, you know, so and then my colleague Ryan like, talked with the leader of uh, Mandavira Cooperative in Paraguay. And, you know, they're just like these powerhouses that they started off just like working to get their, organ- their own organic certification, which is like a rarity for a small farmer org. And mm-hmm. then they just kept on going. And now they have their own farmer own fair trade sugar processing factory. And so they're really like tackling all these issues and you know instead of just doing child labor prevention they have a whole youth training program and this vision to engage young people in rural areas and create this whole like nourishing community controlled food system so they're not just dependent on export crops so my hope is that we're able to tell this story in a way that juxtaposes the real destruction of business as usual in our food system with this amazing work that's already being done. And I hope that that's the takeaway from this is like, you know, we have these things exist. There's already models for this world that we want to have. We just need to deal with the impediments to letting it thrive. Nice. That's beautiful. Yeah, it's. Um, I've been following along on the story so far. I'm not all the way up to date on episodes. I think I just left off um, potentially with that uh, sugar episode. But so far, I've just been really blown away with the the quality of the show as well, um, where it reminds me a lot of like Radiolab or This American Life or something like that, where there's um, this beautiful interweaving of the narrator voice with the actual you know, first voice of, of the people you're talking with and just kind of tying that all together into a story and and making it just clear and concise and, and really telling that powerful story in a way that's easy to understand. So I appreciate all the work that you're putting into it and then sharing that out with the world in beautiful ways too. As somebody who's also recently started a podcast, I've been inspired by some of your social content of like uh, making sure we get captions on some of the videos and looking into different tools like that. So appreciate all the work you're doing there um, in multiple ways. Um, so I'm curious, um, what's coming next is uh, how long does season one go on? How long are you going to continue following that Nestle story? And then do you have an idea yet of what future seasons will look like? Is it similar where you'll tackle a big subject, almost like a, a magazine issue and have a bunch of articles within it each time? Or are you just going to kind of experiment and see what happens? We're going to continue, we continue to pursue this Nestle story for a little bit longer. And but we actually continue then to dive into that question that I was just ending with of what it would take to allow all this amazing work that's being done to thrive and grow. And, you know, I think if you're listening, you'll hear this real downer theme about like massive multinationals like Nestle have co-opted the language of ethical trade and meanwhile, continued business pretty much as usual. And meanwhile, the businesses who are paying farmers fairly and buying from and supporting these amazing projects that we're talking about are stuck competing with them and getting massively outspent in every way while doing it. So in the next couple of episodes, we're going to be breaking down that myth of voting with your dollar and really getting into what it might take to support something that's not just a race to the bottom. So, you know, we're going to actually be talking to somebody, to the lawyer who is currently suing Nestle at the Supreme Court on behalf of some former child laborers. And we're going to be talking with the person who filed a brief in support of those child laborers, actually on behalf of one of the former guests on your show with Alter Eco Foods is one of those who signed on to this brief saying, hey, we support companies being held liable for abuses in their supply chain. 
that that creates a really unequal playing field if one company can manufacture child or chocolate with unpaid child labor and then the other company is you know investing in regeneration and paying farmers fairly right like those are two really different business models so yeah. how do we create room for the one that we want to survive so we we're going to pursue that question a little longer and then for the next series going to continue kind of taking that single item focus and tracing it along. That's still in development, but it is going to be coming back to the US. Ooh. Nice. <laughs> yeah. I think most people, when they think about fair trade, they're thinking about overseas. And that's maybe part of the struggle that some people have connecting the dots because maybe they've never left the country or they. it's harder to imagine working conditions for somebody in a far off land or whatever. And I think telling these stories really helps, but it'll be interesting to see that story also come back over to this side. I know that some of our clients um, through the work we do with modern species, um, they have gotten domestic fair trade certification too, which I think, you know, a lot of people don't even know that exists. And it is kind of obviously a smaller certification and smaller issues, but, but telling both sides of those stories could be really interesting. I think a lot of people just immediately assume fair trade basically just means paying a little bit higher wages <laughs> for um, for the people growing your food. But what I've been kind of really enjoying about the podcast is is hearing the deeper stories of that, that it's not just about the money per se, which is important, obviously, but it's about having a say in how things are grown or the industry, et cetera, that the farmers get a voice at the table as well. And there's obviously a lot more to it than that. So it's um, great to hear those stories through the that format. That said, as a the fair trade expert on this uh, episode, <laughs> what do you wish the brand owners, the marketers, the people in the industry listening to this episode knew about fair trade? I think you're right that fair trade is much more complex than a paying a fair price for a thing. And, you know, we've done a lot of educating for folks around the ways that not all labels are created equal and different certifications stand for different things. And so definitely like head to our website, fairworldproject.org, if you want to get into some of that. But, you know, I think if I were talking to brands and marketers and designers who are trying to do good, who might be listening to this show, one challenge I might issue thinking about fair trade is to let's start moving away from that conventional marketing 101 that the customer is the hero of the story. And instead of focusing on, you know, that one individual purchase, like, did you make a purchase that's, you know, guilt-free chocolate or something? I think we hear a lot. Yeah. Like, let's talk in terms of investment of what we're watering and growing that, a massive multinational like Nestle has the money and the resources to tell this story that makes the customer the hero and make that hero's journey every bit as convincing as you do. And they've got like near infinite resources to do it with. But at the end of the day, like that purchase from them is still tending to a world that prioritizes profits over people and our planet all the way down. And so like, let's really start thinking about investing in something bigger. So it's not just like that one purchase, but it's really like, what is the rest of the story? Who are we investing in? And 
So I think that's one thing. I mean, you know, I think at the end of the day, we see across the industry that certifications don't adequately sum up all of our values. Mm-hmm. That, And, you know, I think we see brands responding to that in a lot of different ways and building their own programs and coming up with their own, you know, this thing TM of what they're doing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and in the spirit of fair trade and the way that my understanding really grew out of coffee, I always come back to history first and foremost, probably also because I'm a nerd. But, <laughs> you know, so many of these crops are built on extracting free and exploited labor from people and externalizing all the other costs. And, you know, we see the implications of that, like, right now with climate change, too. And so... You know, I think that as there are more and more labels in corporate social responsibility programs, there's a lot of really well-intentioned efforts. But if we really want to make trade fair, we need to address the underlying power imbalances there. And I think that means, you know, for brands who want to get involved, like the people who are most impacted need to be in the driver's seat determining what the solutions look like. And you know, that we need to really have a reckoning with the true cost of the foods that we eat and living incomes for farmers and what that would actually look like. So, you know, I think that there's a, right, like there's a lot of issues that are much more complicated at this point than just like pick a thing with a good label on it. Um, (laughs) So I would love to, to see the conversation start to get to that. And, you know, I think I've said, I've said put people before profits like so many times that it's a nice slogan, right? And it sounds really good. But, you know, I think just this week, I don't know if you've been following like what went on with Danon, but, you know, they've made these steps trying to, you know, implicate and implement social responsibility things. And their CEO got kicked out for failing to meet profit goals. Wow. Right. And, (laughs) you know, and there was like some applause for, you know, within like even the B Corp kind of community because they had become a B Corp of like they're doing a good thing. And, you know, I think that what we need to recognize is that these structures that we have right now are set up to reward shareholder profits and put people before profit is a really good vision but you have to have the the system set up to actually reward that. And that's not currently what we have. So we really need to think about all these ways to change that. That's beautiful. I like the uh, note about investing too, because I think like we've mentioned a couple of times, there's so many different certifications you can get. And even all those certifications don't tell the full story <laughs> of all these mission-driven brands and what they're trying to do to make a better world. So sometimes they have to come up with their own little badge. But but when it comes to limited real estate or even limited finances, because you're already paying so much more for everything than your competitors are when you're a mission-driven company, and you can't charge that much more on shelf for your product. So there, there becomes this like push-pull of which certifications are the most important to keep rolling with or which ones to put on the front of the package or the back of the package or just keep on the website. And there's just, I feel like every project we work on, it's like those same conversations of what's most important right now. And more often than not, I feel like the conversation comes down to, well, what does the research say about which which ones consumers are either most interested in or more willing to pay more for or which ones are really the most essential to our brand? And what I like about the 
the notion of investment is it's less about, hey, does this fair trade label or does this climate neutral label or does this, you know, whatever label we're talking about, does that move the needle and convince the consumer to pay the extra 10 cents that I'm asking for? Instead of talking about it in that way, it's more of a, hey, we're committed to fair trade because we want to still be able to buy this good quality, organic, fair trade coffee or chocolate or whatever for decades to come. (laughs) And if we don't support fair trade, those producers might not exist going forward. So I, I like that idea of investing in your future supply chain, you know, beyond a bunch of other th- reasons that you should do it. But but I like that idea of um, investment. And then I also love what you're talking about too, about uh, real costs. <laughs> like I, I've been diving deeper into that lately too. And I, I just wish there was a, we could live in a version of capitalism or whatever, where the the system isn't so rigged because <laughs> it's, it's basically like companies are rewarded for doing the, the wrong thing. And then the more they're rewarded, the more power they get, and the more power they get, the more they rig the system. Whereas all these companies that are doing the right thing have to pay all these extra fees and get all these extra certifications and have these higher costs of of making the product. And then they don't really get to sell it for much higher uh, come to retail. So so it's just this super unfair system. Whereas if uh, if the world got into the habit of paying real prices where companies are all meant to pay living wages or that companies that are trashing the environment have to pay carbon taxes or or whatever, you know, but you just get the true real costs into each product. At the end of that calculation, the more sustainable mission-driven products are probably actually the cheaper ones. (laughs) Not only are they cheaper, but they're better for everyone, (laughs) better for the person buying it, better for the people growing it, better for everyone in between. So it's just an interesting subject to dive deeper into is just the innate unfairness in the system that we have set up right now. Yeah, for sure. No, and I think that, you know, when we think about what the cost of a thing is, so, you know, I've been delving deep into a chocolate bar for a while now. And, you know, one of the things that I think about a lot with that is cocoa farmers get about 6% of the cost of a conventional chocolate bar. and then when you look at that bar divided up, you know, retailers get about 44% of that. And chocolate manufacturers get about 35% of that. And then, there, you know, there's like some space in between for all the other like steps in the supply chain, but that's where the big money is going. And so I think when you think about like who has a little room to maybe shave margins, you can see where that lies on the supply chain. Mm-hmm. And I think it would be great to see those folks take a little bit of action. But again, you know, if cocoa farmers are getting 6% of the cost of a bar, doubling what they were making would make so little impact at the end on the shelf, even if companies didn't pass it or didn't absorb any of that increase. So I think that that's, you know, that's really important. And, you know, I could end up like, talking about this in really esoteric terms sometimes because I, you know, move sometimes in these policy spaces. But, you know, I think it's really important to think about, like, you can start where you're at as a brand. And, you know, if you're buying from, you know, an ingredients processor, a good question to ask is, like, how much 
do the people who are selling to you get paid for their product? And, you know, how does that correlate to what their actual cost is? And then figure out if that's fair. And, you know, you, that you can just be chipping away at these things with small steps. And it doesn't have to be, you know, like, yes, we need to fix the way that this whole big system is rigged. Yeah. And also you can do things like starting now. You don't yeah. have. No it's not so rigged at the moment that you can't make some progress, <laughs> but it is rigged. <laughs> we need to fix it. But in the meantime, still make some progress. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And. There's so many places that we need to make progress, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I think um, what's scary about those facts that you were just sharing about who gets what percentage of the total cost is that the it's totally flipped around in terms of risk too. <laughs> like the the and you go into this in the podcast, but like the the risk that farmers are taking is massive. Like they can they have a good bumper crop, like a good year all of a sudden prices are lower. <laughs> a bad year, prices might be higher, but they didn't you know, grow enough. And it's just this you know, constant questioning of whether or not you're actually going to be able to put food on your family's table or if you're going to go bankrupt and have to sell your farm off or whatever else. Whereas the retailers like often push most of the risk onto the manufacturers or the farmers or whomever else. And so that like, hey, if your product doesn't sell, I'm not like obligated to whatever, or I'm going to require, you know, some free cases in order to put this on the shelf or so on and so forth. So they get the biggest percentage, but they also take the smallest risk. Granted, I know a lot of retailers don't have huge margins end of day, but there's got to be some better ways of managing who gets paid what and who's taking on the, the risks there. Yeah, for sure. No, and I, you know, I, I talked at the beginning of the show about, you know, my like that time when I was working with manufacturers. And honestly, it was like, part of that was like distributor and uh, retailer buybacks was this thing where I was just like, they are treating this system like this product we're selling has basically no cost to us. And yeah. <laughs> that's because it in like a conventional world, it doesn't have that much cost right and the expectation is that you can do like massive promotions and free fills and slotting fees and all this stuff and it that's premised on the idea that your product is purchased extremely cheaply and that your labor is nil or lower so yeah yeah i mean i think <laughs> we could go into a whole long thing and some of this stuff right like it starts to sound like you know, that meme with the conspiracy theory guy and there's like the string <laughs> yeah. threads all over the wall. The um, Illuminati but, is all behind this. <laughs> but they're not. Uh, no, there was just a report that came out by uh, Center for Science and the Public Interest looking at uh, grocery slotting fees and how that, you know, really shapes what's on the shelf in the store. Mm. And where it's located. And, you know, I think we probably know that from talking with some of these smaller brands. But, you know, you have a brand doing these amazing things and all the stuff you want to reward. And they end up like down at the gutter in that place where people like kick the dust on the shelf. Yeah. Right. And the people who end up at eye level are, you know, like this report actually went through Hershey's, for example, as a chocolate company. And, you know, that they're able to pay into a system that then puts them front and center. And they also are able to do that in part because they're subsidized by 
child labor and all these other externalized costs. So yeah, they extract enough throughout the supply chain <laughs> that they're able to pay more for the the retail presence. Exactly. So it's not, you know, that's not new news, but it, that's one of the things that I think about a lot sometimes if we're, you know, in this, as the conversation comes back to, you know, consumer choice, that the system is really set up in a way that putting it all on consumer choice just isn't fair. But it's not even putting it all on accurate. consumer choice. It's like rigging which thing they choose. Right? Like, of course, consumers are going to buy the thing that's right in front of them and not the one that they've just kicked dust on. And of course, consumers... Um, you know, when they're wor worrying about paying their bills, are going to pick the product that's like 20 cents cheaper, 50 cents cheaper, whatever, and tell themselves, you know what, when, when I when finances get back in order, I'll, I'll buy that more expensive thing. But it's, they're almost like false choices. <laughs> like we only the privileged get to pay that extra fee or, or spend the time to like, get on their knees and look on the bottom shelf for the products they're looking for. You know, most people don't, don't have that luxury of either emotional bandwidth because they're just exhausted or the, the knowledge of what is better and what isn't or um, the money to spend on that. So us saying like consumers will vote with their dollars is a little bit of a false assumption just because the system is rigged. Like we keep saying, it's, it's the choice has already kind of been made for them. <laughs> and only a handful of people get to break free of that choice. And it's just not fair. There you go. <laughs> I think you repeated my talking points back, definitely. And so I think that that's, you know, that was actually like a thing when we started the World Fair Trade Day retailer program that we used to have was really, you know, addressing some of those issues of like, who gets an end cap in a grocery store? And so how, how can we get those brands that we know are really like, structuring themselves to support all these things that we want in the world how can we get them in a place that is accessible in a store yeah and same thing with like we were talking about subsidies and stuff as well like how do we get the subsidies in the hands of the organic fair trade better for the world producers and and brands instead of into the hands of the people using <laughs> slave labor and passing off basically a bunch of processed garbage as food like, how do we just reverse the system? But again, like the system is set up that way because those bigger brands have the money to set up the system that way. So it's it's a lot of work. But that's another thing that maybe people don't know about um, Fair World Project is that you do a lot of campaigning and um, advocacy work around raising awareness around bills that are coming up or, um, you know, doing uh, petitions, boycott kind of stuff just to try to help give the people a little bit more power and a little bit more say in what system they want to see built. Yeah, exactly. And I think that our political system is definitely not immune from being rigged either, but that, you know, we really do try to give folks places to connect and make their voices heard in that arena as well, because there is, and, you know, especially like right now, I think there's some there's a lot of energy and good momentum towards actually passing some bills that could be really helpful to folks in a vast array of different places Yeah, <laughs> that some days it's dizzying to just keep up that, <laughs> but we need to be working on all of these fronts and engaging with legislators as well, that those folks need to hear that 
it's not just, you know, grocery lobbyists that have a say in how our food system is or not like the big food companies that people who are eating food every day have a really strong opinion about that too and want the small-scale farmers of the world and local businesses to survive too. Yeah, it's beautiful. So what's... um. I know it's hard to predict anything during these like COVID times, but what's what's next for Fair World Project? Any idea of where you might be heading? <laughs> what is next? Uh, in my crystal ball. <laughs> uh, no, you know, I think that some of the stuff that we're really thinking about is kind of what the what the next step is. And I feel like the Honestly, like listening to the podcast is probably like getting to listen to a sort this out in real time is really like these voluntary commitments are not getting us where we need to be in terms of an overall supply chain that works. And, you know, like we're engaging a lot with folks in Europe that are looking towards like mandatory human rights laws and what would it really take to flip the script and just as you're saying you know that companies that are doing good have to go to all the effort and expense and then the ones that are doing exploitation as usual don't well what if you how do you flip that script is i think a question that we're really thinking about right now and so what does that end up looking like exactly I <laughs> I think that that's going to keep on unfolding. Um, you know, I we're also supporting a lot of folks who are doing really interesting stuff uh, in the U.S. Thinking about like what it looks like to have a binding contract that really ties uh, that s- sort of switches that balance of risk some and makes uh, brands and manufacturers more responsible. for for the conditions that they create with their purchasing contracts. Nice. So just the, thinking about all those little levers that exist to help shift that balance of power a little bit further. Wonderful. Well, I appreciate you and all the work you and your team do over at Fair World Project. And uh, the podcast is awesome. Um, keep up the good work. Thank and you. I'm enjoying following along and hopefully uh, our listeners will also subscribe and follow along. Hint, hint, go go find the podcast wherever you find your podcasts and um, we'll tell you where to find more information um, in the outro. So again, Anna, thanks for uh, taking some time out to share the story a little bit more. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much, Gage. It was delightful to talk to you again. Always good to catch up. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Anna, Fair World Project, and the For a Better World podcast, go to fairworldproject.org. Subscribe to our podcast and YouTube channel for more innovator interviews, expert advice, and leadership discussions. If you like this episode, hit that like button and share it with your colleagues. And of course, send us feedback and ideas for who we should talk to next at evolve at modernspecies.com. And learn about our new online community at evolvecpg.com. See you next week.